From the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, presented by a Cloud Guru, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is Aaron. Um, in case uh, people forget what I sound like, it's been a little while since I've been on. I apologize. And, and actually, no Brian uh, this week. Um, but we have both uh, Cloudcast alum and super interesting guest this week, uh, Jesse Proudman, founder of Strix Leviathan. How are you doing, Jesse? I'm doing super well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So so let me give everyone the, the quick background here. Um we actually met, it was the first time you were on the podcast, um, at the OpenStack Summit in Hong Kong uh, years ago. It was my, you know, and, and, and that was the first time we ever met, and, and it, was, it was really awesome to get you on the show. And you had some really awesome takes on the community and everything that was kind of going on at the time. So it'll be really good to see kind of what you're doing next, because, you know, we've all kind of at some point moved on, you know, some of us, like for me, more than one job. Um, (laughs) But, but tell us a little bit about the last few years. Um, For the longtime listeners that actually remember from Cloudcast 116, you had a, you know, you had a great time at Blue Box. You had a good exit. You went on to IBM. Tell everyone a little bit about that journey before we get into the new stuff. So Hong Kong was, that was November of 14, if I remember correctly. It was. And we had just raised our Series A, uh, I think, mm, December of the year prior. So basically had just sort of set out on building our product and Hong Kong was our launch uh, sort of launch event for Blue Box, and it was an interesting time for the company. Like, we were both proud of having the the product built, but we also we were desperately low on cash, which was was kind of interesting looking back historically. Uh, and we had just taken a, a bridge note from our uh, investors, so uh, sort of mixed emotions going into that event. Uh, the preceding sort of year or so went uh, no, it was 13. That was November of 13. So the preceding year or two years were, were pretty wild. We ended up raising some additional capital in February of 14, um, had a new CEO join us in May of, of 14, went through an acquisition song and dance that whole summer uh, with a, a group of different potential suitors, uh, ultimately ended up raising a, a Series B, instead of uh, being acquired, uh, and then began our conversations with IBM in February of, of 15, which led to the acquisition in June. Um, so it was it was a pretty amazing experience and just unpredictable. I mean, I think all, all startups are unpredictable, but um, sort of the, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows all condensed uh, in a very short time span uh, there. And the, the IBM acquisition was, was wonderful for us. We were Everybody on the team was thrilled to be part of a, a company like IBM. Um, we, with with our product, we always felt really good about the technology. The the Blue Box Cloud OpenStack offering worked really well, um, and and all of the customers that we had on the platform loved it. But we we just struggled to get sales traction, and I think part of that was due to uh, being a small venture back Seattle startup. 
really where the target customer for an offering like that is a much larger enterprise. And so we felt like being part of IBM would, would really satisfy um, that, that sort of gap in, in sales capabilities that we had. Um, and so the, the first year at IBM was fascinating. I spent uh, that year traveling all over the globe, meeting customers and other team members from IBM, um, and really building brand awareness inside of IBM. It's pretty fascinating going from a 65-person startup to 400,000. Um, and so much of my job is basically became selling the product to other IBM uh, teams, whether really th- sort of from a thought top of mind uh, perspective. Uh, so that that went well. We had a, a bunch of additional technical development work we did sort of in that time at IBM, um, and uh, really really enjoyed it. Learned a ton through that experience. Um, after about two years, sort of in in that role as distinguished engineer working on that product, I started to get the itch just to do something else. And you know, in total, I started Blue Box in '03. We were acquired in in '15. Uh, so. Um, in 17, it's just a, it's a long time to spend in a single domain focused on a single product and was ready to do something new. And so got connected with the IBM Ventures team uh, and spent much of uh, 2017 as an EIR working with them on some new programs and ideas. Uh, and, and that was great in a totally different light. It's fascinating to see how uh, venture programs operate in a company like IBM how they think about uh, bringing new sort of startup-focused programs to market, uh, And just real quick, define EIR, because I know what it is from reading, reading about it, but just for the folks that don't know. Yeah, so in, in EIR as an entrepreneur in residence, you typically see this at a venture firm where they have a portfolio CEO who's, who's had an exit and is sort of thinking about what they're going to do next but doesn't, doesn't quite know, and so they – uh, generally hang around uh, the venture firm and look at ideas and meet teams and just sort of think about what they're, what they're building next. Um, and so I had that opportunity uh, inside of IBM to do something similar, um, but was focused more on entrepreneurship. So what are the what are programs or initiatives we can launch inside of IBM um, that, that would help the company um, versus starting a new business? Uh, so that, that was, a, again, a great experience, really enjoyed the opportunity to kind of think about uh, think about and get exposure to what launching a program like uh, would would be like inside of a company of that size. And was this so? So at least you know externally watching you through the twitters and 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 we did catch up a couple times over the last couple of years at various shows and things. This this almost felt like a you know almost like a a hobby or a research project that turned into a passion, which turned into the next thing. And so tell us a little bit about that that journey of. Going from uh, entrepreneur in residence at IBM to actually founding Strix Leviathan, and then let's really start to dig into this intersection of AI and and cryptocurrency. And and for those that aren't familiar with that, by the way, we're going to have like a speed round of what the heck is cryptocurrency um, <laughs> as well for for our, our our audience. But go ahead and start with that. Yeah, absolutely. So you're exactly right. I mean, I think the work I was doing with IBM Ventures was was largely focused on sort of blockchain and some of the the items that IBM is doing with blockchain, which um, for the, for all intents and purposes does not include any of the cryptocurrency piece. IBM is focused on Hyperledger and on sort of blockchain as that distributed database technology that can underpin replacement of business systems. Um, and so as I was spending time learning about that for, for IBM, um, 
started to just become curious about the, the currency side. And I went to college with uh, two folks that have been in the space for, for years, Nick Carey, who's the co-founder of blockchain.com, uh, and Eric Voorhees, who's the founder of Shapeshift. And so I've been following along what they've been doing, and, and both of them are on the finance side. Blockchain is a wallet company, and Shapeshift is a sort of a distributed exchange. Uh, and uh, it's always it's always piqued my interest, but never had the time to put sort of the intellectual investment in to understand everything about the space. Uh, and being able to kind of begin to have that time last summer um, and, and spending sort of hours learning about blockchain, hours learning about the uh, cryptocurrency side, um, it really piqued my interest. And, and you're exactly right, sort of uh, from, from side interest to hobby, um, sort of nights and weekends last year began dabbling with every sort of technical component of this space that I could. So uh, set up mining rigs uh, to to mine cryptocurrencies, was doing sort of speculative trading on the side, just trying to figure out all the different pieces that make up this space. And as I got into October, November, and December, um, really started to get passionate on the currency side. Uh, knew that um, sort of blockchain to me as a, a technology, uh, you know, I think that's a three to seven year adventure for folks. Uh, we're, we're just at the beginning innings of using that. And so all these startups that are that are sort of moving digital rights management onto the blockchain or are moving, um, I'm an advisor to a company that's moving uh, sort of uh, like your resume to the blockchain, like those are really interesting businesses to me. But I think it's it's a multi year journey before we figure out sort of the winners and the losers there. Um, the currency side is happening right now. It's been happening over the last couple of years, and so that that was really interesting to me. Um, having spent sort of fifteen years building a business and and trying to find a market and waiting for that market to appear and then capitalizing on that market once it did um, walking into something on the ground floor sort of second inning as I I like to call it um, and knowing that there was an opportunity to build a business today that would have customers today that that was really exciting and and that started to get sort of my entrepreneurial juices flowing uh, in those those last couple months of 2017 um, ultimately, to the point where I decided to leave IBM uh, January first and and go try to start this new company. So let's start at the start then. What is, in your definition, cryptocurrency, and how is it different from blockchain? So we'll, we'll start with blockchain. Blockchain is a technology that provides a distributed, immutable ledger. So that means uh, today, when you interact with your bank. They store transaction records, what you deposit and what you withdraw, in an internal database that is uh, sort of proprietary to that bank. Imagine if you took that database and uh, distributed it all over the globe so that no single entity uh, maintained uh, sort of the the entire database. It it was uh, copied across computers all over the globe, which prevents it from being turned off. Uh, And then uh, now imagine that you can't that sort of it's amend only so once something is written to that database uh, and distributed all over the globe it can't be changed which when you're talking about a ledger that that's what you want Um, so blockchain provides the technology to do that cryptocurrencies then uh, essentially are a unit of account or a, a sort of a token that sits on top of a blockchain 
um, that allows for individuals to to transact and to um, and to ex- to exchange value uh, as a currency uh, riding on that that blockchain itself. Gotcha. So so blockchain is the storage medium and cryptocurrency is the actual value. Is that a kind of a correct statement? Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Okay. And and what does cryptocurrency use as its basis for value? You know, it it uses essentially a, a Bitcoin. We'll talk about Bitcoin predominantly in this conversation. People should realize there's now 1,500 of these currencies that exist um, out there. that many? Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know there now. was that many. <laughs> yeah, Bitcoin was the first, uh, and it is the largest by market cap, but now there there are 1,500. Uh, so for this conversation, we'll, we'll talk about Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin or the value of Bitcoin is essentially set based on exchanges that are trading it. So whatever the spot price is on those exchanges across the globe is sort of the agreed upon price of Bitcoin. And so oftentimes people will will look at it and say, well, it's not backed by any entity. Um, It's only worth what people are willing to pay for it. And that's true. Um, It's also true about the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is not backed uh, by any entity. It's only worth uh, something because people are willing to accept it. The the difference there is that the U.S. government obviously accepts U.S. dollars for taxes. They do not yet accept Bitcoin to pay your taxes. Um, So so that's sort of the the big difference. But uh, it's uh, it's pretty interesting in that regard. Yeah. And and so the other thing I always hear about with Bitcoin or any really cryptocurrency is volatility, right? It, they've, they've been so crazy volatile for the last co- couple of years. So is it, in theory, a good idea to have a currency that is so volatile? Yeah, it, it is definitely true. Uh, I mean, if you look just 2017 to today, for example, the beginning of 2017, a single Bitcoin is worth somewhere around $1,000. By the end of the year, it was worth somewhere around $19,000. And then between January and today, it's dropped to six. It's risen to to 6,000. It's risen to 14,000. It's dropped to 7.5,000. And I think today it's hovering around 8,600. So Volatility is definitely a, a big part of uh, the life of anybody involved in this space. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think from a store of value or a, a, a transaction medium that that's a, a thing that helps the currency. Um, that is, uh, on, on the flip side, it's the result of the fact that there are only uh, sort of 21 million of these Bitcoins that will ever be created. Uh, and there is a lot of demand for them. Uh, and so uh, the price uh, rises in response to that demand or, or drops uh, based on a, a lack of demand. Um, it's sort of just an inherent nature uh, of, the, of the medium. Um, over time, I think that price will stabilize. And there's are other – in that basket of 1,500 currencies, there are other currencies that have been created to address that stability issue. So there is a whole subset of cryptocurrencies called stablecoins, and a stablecoin's proposition is that it is pegged one-to-one to another form of currency. So Tether is, is probably the most well-known and, and arguably um, the most controversial, but Tether is a stablecoin that is pegged one-to-one to U.S. dollars, uh, and it, it, it uh, may drop to 93 cents or may rise to Sort of a dollar thirteen, um, you know. But it, it, by by far and large, you can trust that one tether is one dollar, um, and so th- there's been this whole 
uh, stable of these coins created to, to address that volatility problem. And so at the end of the day, people getting involved, they decide what they're most interested in. Do they want a to own uh, Bitcoin, knowing that it is a currency with limited supply and therefore inflationary in nature, uh, or do or excuse me, deflationary in nature? Do they want uh, to own sort of a, a digital stable coin that is pegged to the dollars that they they have? Yeah. The, okay. So. That's a really good background. Thank you. And and so um, for the listeners, this one may go a little bit longer than normal because I feel like we probably needed to establish a base, you know, knowledge foundation, if you will, that maybe we normally don't have to. So le- let me kind of take it one step further then. Of course, this being early days, there are struggles with uh, just inherent to the technology and the exchanges. And I was reading um, an article on uh, Tech TechCrunch, for instance, and you, you actually specifically mentioned – like API issues in trading uh, on these as being problems of, okay, you do a trade, but you don't get any confirmation. And so you don't know, did the confirmation happen or did it not happen? And, and how do you think things like that affect the markets? And is, and, and then that will ultimately roll that into, okay, what problem is, is Strix Leviathan trying to solve for ultimately as well? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question and one that really captivated my mind much of, of uh, last year. So uh, there are – right now, there's 15 to $20 billion a day uh, that trades hands uh, in, in these 1,500 currencies across a, a pretty significant number of exchanges. Those exchanges, uh, by far and large, they're all brand new. Uh, you know, Coinbase is probably the, the most well-known. It's only been around – um, for I mean, less than a decade, right? Um, and so, the uh, the second piece is that all these exchanges, despite the fact that they're new, they then experienced substantial growth last year, far above and beyond anything that they imagined. Um, and so, the combination of those two things has resulted in technology platforms that aren't necessarily ready or able to s- handle the volume of traffic moving through them for your everyday average consumer and even for myself last year sort of in in the speculative investing that i was making where you may just be using the web interfaces um, and you're you're placing buy or sell orders and you know maybe two or three a day that's fine and and a lot of the growth in the industry has occurred um, from individuals like that if you are an institution and you are building sort of high-frequency high trading is probably the wrong word, but algorithmic trading um, into these markets or you're looking to, to make significantly more trades every day, you begin to move from using those web interfaces to using the APIs that the exchanges provide. And those APIs are just – they're just early. I think that's the best way to describe them. And so the, in the experimentation that I had last year – experience things like API timeouts when you're placing trades or you'd place a trade and and literally the API would return gar- like just garbage in the response <laughs> uh, or you'd place a trade you get a confirmation and you'd go into the web interface and see that two trades were placed and, and developers so, making software is basically what you just summarized <laughs> yeah exactly like, so you can't you can't trust that the API is going to do what the API says it's going to do and and I mean, you look at traditional Wall Street, like that is not a problem that exists in traditional Wall Street. Those are solved issues by far and large. 
um, in, in traditional uh, financial markets. They will become solved in this market, um, in the cryptocurrency market, but it will be um, years before that that's uh, completed. And so that, that was really an interesting question for me. Like, How are these institutions who are managing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars – I think I, I read an article this week that said – of the 200 plus hedge funds that exist focused on crypto, they represent $3.4 billion of assets. Like, how are they going to go reliably interact with these exchanges? And I, I poked around last year trying to find a solution for that, and, and there wasn't an offering on the market. So now every hedge fund has to go build their own interfaces to these things, which felt like a silly waste of time, right? The people running hedge funds should be focused on the algorithms they're using or their trading strategy or. Um, right. Yeah. The, or, or the old the uh, fundamentals of their business. Right. The old don't reinvent the wheel, but there was no wheel yet. So they have to all go build their own wheel. Right. It's not a known so, established thing. Hence Strix Leviathan, right? Correct. So like, <laughs> aha, there's an obvious opportunity here. And that's, that's exactly right. So we essentially pulled a team together and, and launched this company in January with the belief that we could be the institutional trading um, and cryptocurrency management platform um, that solves that that problem. So uh, our offering essentially has three components. Uh, the first is a data ingestion engine. So we pull down data from all the exchanges, we normalize it into a consistent format, uh, and then we store it. Uh, and so that data is valuable for exchange uh, for individuals trying to come up, or for these institutions trying to come up with uh, their trading strategies. Um, once we have all the data now in, in place, then sort of the second column of our offering is uh, algorithmic development. So uh, how do you derive trading strategies from that data? I think many firms will do that on their own uh, from the data, but we think there are firms that would like assistance building those strategies. And then the third element is once you have a strategy that you're ready to go execute, how do you put that in place uh, to execute orders across um, all of the exchanges. And, and the desire to execute across all the exchanges really is around liquidity. So ensuring that uh, you have ample liquidity in whatever market you're trading, you need to utilize um, more than one exchange. And so being able to have a unified API, like an abstracted API that we provide that says, go place a trade for this market on this exchange and have our system go out and do that reliably for you, um, that that's sort of the, the third element in that trade execution engine. And is this a B2B only or, or is this B2C as well? Yeah, it's a B2B only play. Uh, so there, as we looked at the space, there's a ton of tools and, and uh, technologies that are focused on the consumer trader. Uh, we felt like that was a well-handled uh, problem. We felt like that institutional trader, was that was the group that was really missing something. Fair enough. Um, what is the so? Tell me a little bit more about kind of the AI piece of all of this. Like when and how does it kick in, and and is it kind of doing machine learning on the fly, or is it just kind of doing pre pre programmed AI? Tell me a little bit about that portion of all of it. Yeah, so that sits in that algorithmic development silo. So sort of we pull that data down. And then we've essentially built a set of technology that, that is sitting there and coming up uh, with trading strategies uh, sort of on, on the fly. Um, so if, if you think about how these trading strategies work, ultimately you're looking at a bunch of, of historical data. You, you can create a number of different 
uh, indicators off of that data, uh, and you make decisions to buy or sell based on those indicators. Most traders in the market today are sort of doing that or going through that process by hand. So I look at the charts, I see a pattern. Uh, I try to correlate that pattern to the indicators, and then I now have a sort of an algorithm I've developed based on these statically defined numbers. And that that certainly works, and it's a definitely a viable strategy, but markets change over time. Uh, and something that you create that works super well, say in Q4 of last year, where the markets, the crypto markets were in a huge bull run, don't work uh, as well say, in February and March, where the, the crypto markets have been uh, trending in a more bearish uh, way. And so we wanted to have this this machine learning algorithm that can sit there and, and essentially, for each market condition, derive its own set of indicators that demonstrate um, positive return. So that that's really what, what we're focused on in that algorithmic piece in the center and again, we think some some of the clients that we'll be targeting will be doing their own work in that space, and we'll just want to use the data that we have in the the order execution engine. And we think there are others uh, that that will be interested in what we're able to do uh, with that AI. Nice. And and so just this week, you received um, one point six million, if I if I remember correctly, in funding. So what what's next for the platform, man? What what you gonna do? You know, what's kind of the the larger vision as well? It's been a pretty incredible start to the year. So I mean, this I left IBM one one. We basically pulled the team together in January. So uh, it's myself, uh, Ryan Tomeko, who is the CTO of GitHub up to twenty fifteen, is leading our engineering efforts. Lee Huffman, who worked at GitHub on their data center infrastructure, is leading all of our. Uh, technical operations, all of our infrastructure. Uh, Steve Alkire, who is a Columbia particle physicist PhD and worked at CERN on their uh, LHC, the collider, over in uh, Switzerland, he joined the team to run all our data science and machine learning initiatives. And then Sadie Rainey, uh, who is my controller at Blue Box, uh, has joined to run uh, operations, so legal compliance and accounting. So pretty pretty awesome team of people I pulled together. I'm, I feel honored and humbled to be able to work with, with folks like this. Um, so that, that was January. And as we, we originally just kind of bootstrapped the company, uh, and as we looked at the market conditions and started to look at the legal bills that we were going to get, uh, we, we realized that uh, by far and large, we could, we could go raise capital and use that capital in the network, predominantly the network of the investors, uh, to go have access to conversations and the information that we otherwise wouldn't be, be privy to in the cryptocurrency space, mainly because Seattle is, uh, is becoming, but is not yet, it's becoming a hub of activity in this space. But um, San Francisco and New York continue to sort of lead the way. So we wanted to make sure that we had folks in those geographies that were uh, financially motivated to, to really help our organization. And that I think that... Sense, yeah. Yeah, the the first save on like V1 of the pitch deck, I think it was the second week of January, uh, and we ultimately closed the round about two weeks ago. We, we announced it this week, but closed it about two weeks ago. It was, I think it was six weeks beginning to end, and which blew my mind. I mean, it took me two years at Blue Box to raise our Series A. Uh, sure. I was talking, talking to one of our advisors last night. Two years to raise our Series A on a company that had been around for nine years, had six to seven million dollars in trailing revenue, you know, forty employees. Like we were established business, 
Uh, and it just took a, a really long time. Uh, you, you take this situation, sort of second-time founder, uh, pretty stacked team, hot space, uh, and it, it transforms that entire experience. So I'm thrilled we were able to do that as quickly as we did. Now the the, uh, the emphasis really is on, on product development. Um, we're sort of heads down now building the, the tools and the technology here to get uh, the first iteration of the of the platform launched. We have uh, an early customer uh, that is signed on to help provide feedback and to um, guide us as we continue the development, but uh, spending all of our energy getting getting the tools and the technology and the platform built. Nice. And and so we're, we're kind of running uh, up against time here. So I'll ask you one last question, which is kind of related to what you just mentioned. Um, you know, you you took a, um, by by um, the usual Silicon Valley standards, you took a pretty unconventional approach with Blue Box. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, the company was around for a long time and then you, you kind of built a, a, a standalone business and then uh, went and raised some money and then went after the exit. And, and so what lessons did you learn and what will you bring forward uh, into Strix Leviathan from that experience? Yeah, that's a good question. I Matt, mean, I, I learned so much from from those 15 years. Um, it's it's amazing. I mean, I, the, the biggest piece was really capital management. Um, it's it, it particular. And what was difficult is having having an operating business with with capital with cash coming in and cash going out. Um, we we never really had the surplus of money to go invest in any new development initiatives. So we're always, I mean, we, we were profitable, but just barely, um, and so. Once we raised that capital at Blue Box, uh, it, it you know it was it was difficult. We got really excited. <laughs> we got <laughs> sure. too many people, and right. uh, you know, and so that became a, a challenge. Um, definitely approaching things very differently on on this go round, um, being much more conscientious about about the efforts um, and really the the realistic timeline uh, required that once you've built a product to to bring it to market. So that that's a big difference. Um, the second really was around team size. So Blue Box was 65 people when we got acquired. Um, we had an amazing group of folks, but 65 people, uh, you know, that, that starts to introduce middle management and all sorts of different organizational people challenges. Uh, and in, in this go around, I'm, I'm really conscientiously keeping uh, the design of the company. It, it, we just wanted to be small. We wanted to have a, a really small, close-knit group of folks where – um, we all sort of know each other really well and, and have a big belief in what we're building. Um, and that changes when, when you design an organization that way, it changes how you grow. It changes your strategy. It changes your, your fundraising approach. Uh, so, so that's been different. Um, and then making sure that we've got a lot of flexibility, uh, flexibility in business model, flexibility in work location, flexibility in, um, in sort of like team member backups, having no single point of failure on the team, making sure that we've got redundancy and skill sets um, is, is really important. That For the first nine years at Blue Box, um, it felt impossible to take a vacation. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to repeat that. Yeah. I, I want to make sure we've got we've sure. got you know I think I think that's a you know single single founder versus you know we have a co-founding team of five. Uh, there are, there's big differences in how a company operates between those two uh, and I'm, I'm sure I'll learn a lot about what it's like to have a company with a 
with a team of five in this one, which will be different than, than last time. So it's not to say this is sort of magic recipe, but um, we definitely, I definitely picked out the things I, I wasn't thrilled about at Blue Box and designed around them in this one. Awesome. That's fantastic. Well, Jesse, um, thank you very much for your time today. How can everyone um, find out more either about you or about the company and, and what you have going on? Yeah, I keep Twitter updated on a pretty regular basis. So I'm just at Jesse Proudman, J-E-S-S-E-P-R-O-U-D-M-A-N on Twitter. We have Strix Leviathan as an account as well, um, which you're welcome to, to follow. Uh, and that's, that's probably the best spot. Fantastic. All right. So thank you again, Jesse. And, and on behalf of Brian and myself, uh, thanks everyone for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more podcasts, show notes, and everything social media. And visit acloud.guru for all your cloud training needs.